Hello, listeners. This is Dave Silk, Chief Marketing Officer of Mitel Networks. As I'm sure you've found in your career, success in business often comes down to how well we communicate with customers, employees, and all of our stakeholders. At Mitel, our job is to make communications easier, more convenient, and more efficient through technology. We're proud to be the sole sponsor of the Lead from the Heart podcast and its message of empathy and caring not to mention safe, open, and honest communication. If you'd like to learn more about Mitel, you can find us at mitel.com forward slash mark. Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. My guest today is a truly brilliant person, Columbia University Business School professor Eric Johnson, whose new book, The Elements of Choice, is so stunning in its insight that I absolutely had to introduce him to you. You've probably heard of the famous study which showed that organ donation rates soared once opting into the program became the default policy. Well, that groundbreaking research was Eric Johnson's work, and it's gone on to influence policies all around the world. Eric Johnson is one of the top researchers and experts in what's called choice architecture. Whether we realize it or not, many of the choices we think we're making independently every day are framed in ways that systematically limit us or steer us to selections that others want us to make. So whether it's food off a menu, flights we take on vacation, investment allocations we make in our retirement plans, even the movies we watch on Netflix, what we end up picking is heavily influenced by how the choices are presented. And to reiterate, a lot of the time, we're being unwittingly pushed or nudged into making decisions that aren't always in our best interests. What Eric is here to share with us all is an understanding of how to identify the choice architecture being used in any given situation so that we can make far better and more informed decisions going forward. And he also believes that all of us are choice architects and can be a superpower in leadership when we use the knowledge ethically and fairly. And it can be a superpower in leadership when we use the knowledge ethically and fairly. Before I welcome Eric, let me ask you a quick question. Would you rather have a sandwich where the meat inside was 25% fat or 75% lean? Even though these happen to be the exact same thing, the words fat and lean tend to greatly affect our perception. And noting that most of us would choose 75% lean because it sounds healthier. The point is the words we all use also play a huge role in choice architecture. I absolutely learned so much in reading Eric's book and our time with him now promises to be extremely interesting and informative. And with that, let me welcome you to the podcast, Professor Eric Johnson. Thank you. Great to be here, Mark. Well, this is a joy for me. I really loved your book. And uh, sometimes, I shouldn't say this, but sometimes the books that I read can be a little bit dry, not well written, and yours was neither. It was very compelling, very interesting. And it's a topic, truthfully, I just kept thinking, people don't know this. People aren't aware of this. So let's get to it. As you open your book, you say that it's an illusion that any of us alone determines the choices we make. That's an interesting statement. And whether it's food off a menu or flights we take on vacation, even the Netflix movies we end up watching, what we end up picking is heavily influenced by how the options are presented. And despite the fact that years of research has shown that the way choices are posed affects our actions, most of us don't fully realize that there are large and systematic ways that we're being pushed or even nudged into making decisions 
that may or may not be in our best interest. That's sort of the big takeaway from your book. So let's start there. Tell us what choice architecture is and why understanding it is so important to people, whether they're a workplace leader or not. Well, Mark, it's really useful to have a concrete example, I think. So thinking about this, imagine you're at work and someone is presenting you with retirement plans. Now, before you've gotten to that plan, someone has actually made a bunch of decisions. They've decided what plans should be there, what order are they going to be presented in, and also what are the attributes? You know, do they describe risk return? Do they describe safety? Do they describe fees? And finally, and maybe even most importantly, what happens if you don't make a decision? The person who's made that set of decisions, I'll call them designers, because designers are the people who actually construct the choice architecture, that is, the place we make decisions. To make things simpler, I'm going to say there are designers, and that's, it turns out, many of us most of the time. But there are also choosers, which are the person who's picking a pension plan. So that's one example of choice architecture, where the designer is actually, is your hidden partner. They've made a bunch of design decisions that will influence what you choose. Well, you use the word hidden partner. But are they always our partner? In other words, if an organization is getting a rebate from a mutual fund company to feature their their products, then I'm being excluded, for example, from looking at other funds. Or and frankly, even if that's not being, you know, sort of financially rewarded, if somebody just makes the decision that I'm going to go with fidelity. Well, okay. So but that means there's myriad other organizations that have great products that I'm not going to get a chance to look at. So I just want you to pin down that they're not always a an advocate when they make these kinds of decisions. Is that true? So a challenge in writing the book I thought a lot about is do I, I these tools can be used for both the chooser's best interest and against the chooser. And as I say, I, I'm an optimist. So I'm going to assume in most of my examples, although not all, that they're being used in the best interest. They are your partner, but they can be an evil partner. Agreed. Okay. So now define choice architecture because it really sort of is the, the language that we're going to be using for the rest of our time together. It's the set of decisions that a designer makes in deciding how to present a choice to you. No choice architecture is neutral. Someone has to make a bunch of decisions. Let's take a simple one, like how many options to present you. Now, someone is actively making that choice. They might decide to present as you only Fidelity funds or only Vanguard funds. They might give you all 5,000 mutual funds that exist, or the number is actually much more than that now. Someone's making that choice. That's the designer. And what results from that is a choice architecture. So thank you for the definition. I think the big takeaway for me is that we don't realize we're presented with a choice, but we don't realize that there's a designer on the other side of it that is making decisions that's limiting that choice in some way, with the exception of them saying, no, you can have all 5,000 mutual funds and we don't care. Any other number is a reduction in options. And they're making that in the sense of, you know, we don't want you to have a million options. We want to give you scaled down choices to help you make a better decision. It's being done in the best interest. But I think there's times when we don't necessarily think, oh, somebody has made the decision as to what they're presenting to me. Meaning that you could also ask them, am I limited to this? In other words, you've designed this for me this way, but could I make a different decision? 
So do you encourage people to think that way? Or do you encourage people to say, take what options are presented to you and make the best decision from those options? So it's a really good question. And so let's go back to the phrase hidden partner. Why is it that we don't realize that there is somebody out there? And one of the reasons is, and what's very hard about thinking beyond that, is we're too busy making a choice. I'm trying to figure out which mutual fund has the lowest cost. So how am I going to go beyond and say, oh, and by the way, why is the peanut butter at eye level? Or why does Amazon have that button big, bright, and red? I'm just trying to make a decision. So it's very hard to think about thinking. Okay. So in a minute, I'm going to ask you to give us some examples of how marketers or companies have used choice architecture to their advantage, because I'm curious about this, you know, like to manipulate us in ways that we would not have suspected. But because you have (laughs) a much more benign approach to this, give us an example or two of how choice architecture may be helping us sift through a lot of data before we make a choice. So give us some other examples beyond retirement plans. Absolutely. Uh, One that's going to be close, but I think is a good illustration, is something we've done research on, which is health insurance plans. It turns out health insurance is actually pretty complicated in general. And the important thing to realize is that someone can give you three plans, five plans, 20 plans. What the literature indicates is people are really bad at that choice. There are some companies that actually have present plans that are worse than others on every way. There's a fancy word called they're dominated, but that means is basically I can get the same insurance more cheaply. Mm. And it turns out in these companies, 35% of the people actually pick a dominated option. So they're doing badly. And frankly, I don't know anyone who loves, they don't look forward to the time of year where the benefits program come and say, oh, I get to choose health insurance again. That's fantastic. It's actually a pretty tough task. So one of the things we did to look at this is how could we make this simpler? One very easy way is we could actually combine the costs. So in healthcare, there's deductibles, there's co-pays, there's premiums. If you could just do the math and do what a typical policy will cost, people will do much better with that choice. So, And it turns out after year three of the Affordable Care Act, many of the state exchanges started adding such calculators to their websites because otherwise people were shopping on one consideration, like, say, cheapest premium. And then when they got to actually use insurance, they realized they had signed up for a plan with a really high deductible, so they had to pay a lot of money out of pocket. So, aligned to your benign thinking here, what they've actually done is to intentionally make it better for people, clearer to understand so that they can make more informed and, i.e., better choices. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. And of course, in this case, it's not only it's actually making the insurance better for the consumer, but since a lot of that is subsidized, it's actually saving the taxpayer money. So if it's not Obamacare that you just referred to, and you're working for an organization and they're presenting you your benefits and your health insurance options, is there a mindset that you encourage all of us to have when we start looking at that? So ignoring the fact that the Obamacare methodology is more deliberately informative so that people can make better choices. Let's assume that that's not the menu and it's very complicated. How do you want people thinking about making these decisions? So approaching it from a, you know, I want to make the best possible decision and these are the options. How do I maneuver? It's a great question. And one of the things to think about is what are the important attributes to me? So perhaps even before you engage in the decision, say, 
Do I want cheap insurance? Do I want insurance that has low out-of-pocket costs? How much of healthcare do I use? So essentially trying to figure out what your values are before you approach a decision might be useful. I think that's useful in a lot of decision-making, so I'm glad I asked that question. Yes. All right. Now tell us about choice architecture that we should all be paying close attention to in order to prevent us from making costly decisions, something outside of what we were just talking about. So a really good example, I think, these days are privacy decisions. Mm. Obviously, there's a potential disconnect. Maybe you don't mind sharing your private information. Maybe you love customized advertising, in which case you can ignore the next few things I'm going to say. But the reality is many of us want to make that choice. and We're not necessarily comfortable with all of our information being shared broadly. And yet there are lots of things that have been done to make it difficult to exercise that choice. One thing is by default, often our information is shared. And until the EU generated what's called the GDPR, which is a fancy acronym, essentially says these are the ways you have to get people to make choices about cookies. The default, in the least in the U.S., was information can be shared, cookies can be deposited. Regulation has changed that. But even with regulation, you are asked questions like, do you want to change your cookie setting or not? Now, most of us don't know what cookies are. And they're asking us at a time when we're really super busy. We want to book that flight. We want to buy that doodad from Amazon. So it's not the time we want to make that choice. One of the other places is ad tracking on your iPhone. For a long time, Amazon hid that in six menus down. It was very hard to find. And even if you found the setting, most people, including myself, don't seem to be able to understand what is being done. So that's a place where there seems to be a disconnect between what firms would like, which is access to your information, and what some people at least would like, which is to have some control. So one of the things that you pointed out in the book, like you just were mentioning, is that the opportunity or the the way, the manner of going on to any company's website and opting out of being tracked is convoluted, Rube Goldberg, six menus down, you just said. And so they've made it really hard to opt out, which kind of, you know, I tried to test that actually. LinkedIn started something which they backed away from very quickly, which was if somebody sent you a message through LinkedIn, it became an email. And so it showed up in your email box. Hmm. And then within 24 hours, you got a message from LinkedIn saying the sender of this message is still waiting for your response. So within your own email box, prioritize this because we're going to keep annoying you, (laughs) nudging you to respond to this one above and beyond all other emails. And I actually tweeted out and said, this is an annoying practice and please stop. And it went away. So I don't know if I had any influence over it, but The point I'm trying to make is that marketers are always looking for ways to get more from us. And is there some regulation on making it easier for people to opt out? Or do you have any separate advice to people for taking back more control over their privacy? I think the thing that's interesting about your question is this notion that people without additional tools will end up making decisions they don't want to make. And in terms of that, I think one of the very simple pieces of advice is to think about the role of default. So presumably at the LinkedIn setting at the time, you could have gone into the website and said, no, I don't want such emails. But notice the default, which was annoying to you, had a lot of impact. 
And in general, I think the number one thing I think people should think about is when they see a default is to actually decide whether that's what they want or not. To actually sort of say, am I making a decision or am I just automatically accepting something? I like that. Speaking of defaults, I mean, you cited an example of how tipping choices that people are given in restaurants, taxi cabs, influence people to not just tip when they might not have otherwise, but to tip more generously. So the designers are giving you richer options. So please explain, since you mentioned default settings, what does that mean? And what should we learn from examples like these? I want to give you a very specific definition, which is what happens if you don't make an active choice. So for example, for years, we'll go back to retirement savings. The default was you would save nothing in your company. That was changed in the late 90s to actually allowing firms to set something other than zero as the default. So in many companies, if I don't make a decision, I am saving. There's actually some money going into my retirement plan. In the tipping example, which is one that actually is very cute because it's been studied, in New York City, they started doing these nice little TVs in the back of cabs that actually had a screen. You could tip, it turns out, either 15, 20, or 25 percent, or 20, 25, or 30 percent. The menus were actually different, but of course, people taking the same cab ride. And the cabbies who had the menu that had with the higher amounts made more money, about 5% more per shift. So they got a raise simply by changing the options in the back. Wow. And so that didn't annoy anybody that didn't like when people were seeing it? So one thing you'd expect to see actually is people tipping nothing. And there's a very small increase when you get the high menu cost, but they're still better off even with those few people saying, oh, well, I'm going to not tip you at all. So no, I mean, it turns out that people, if they're not aware of these influences, they tend not to basically say, well, I'm not going to tip at all. So what is going on psychologically when we see that? So we see 15, 25, 30% options for tip and tip at that point until it comes up on your screen when you're paying your bills, you hadn't even thought of it. But now you're seeing it. So are you just mindlessly saying, oh, it's got to be one of these three? Is that where people are? So we've thought a lot about how this works and actually we've done some studies So one of the reasons defaults are so powerful is because they work in different ways or in multiple ways. So one thing is exactly what you're thinking, which is it's easy. It's just I'm lazy. It's easy. And so I just press the button. A second thing, though, is it seems like it's an endorsement that maybe the people who run the cab service think that 15 or 20 percent is the right amount. So that sounds right. The third thing, which is a little bit subtler, is endowment. It's like you have to ask yourself, oh, I'm going to tip 15%. Now, is there a reason why I shouldn't? And so the way memory works, it's very funny. We call this assembled preferences. It's not like I walk around in every situation and say, I'm going to leave, always leave an 18% tip. It's like I sort of make out that decision at the time I need to make it. So what you end up doing is basically those suggestions change the way you think about it. And so you'll think about, well, 15% seems like a good tip. So it's those three E's, we call them, endorsement, ease, and endowment, that seem to be the key to how defaults work. Just out of curiosity, is the 30%, i.e. the highest percentage of those three options, is that a decoy? In other words, is that placed in there so that people will feel more comfortable giving 18 or 25%? So there's big research literature that talks about the kinds of options you have and how that influences 
So there is a, a nice thing called the compromise effect that people, when they're not thinking very deeply, pick the middle one. So mm-hmm. it not only gives you permission to do 15, it probably generates more 20% tips. I think the figure is there are five times as many 15% tips when that's the lowest on the screen than when it's not on the screen. So it's a big difference. Wow. It's worth discussing this because this happens to all of us. We're all confronted or you know exposed to this. So what are some other defaults that we might have accepted without ever considering you know, what we really agreed to? You have this experiment where people agreed to give away their firstborn child. <laughs> they didn't realize it. They were checking the box. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's true. It's actually not my study, but it's a beautiful study where they basically give people a privacy policy. As you said, people tend not to read those. And this privacy policy was, I agree to give you my firstborn child <laughs> and share all my information with the National Security Agency. And I believe it's something like 90% of people agree to that and, of course, hadn't read it. So that's one. One that's a little bit more serious, and I think it's actually brings us a little bit to the role of choice architecture in developing people, is an experience I had when I was president of a professional organization called the Society for Neuroeconomics. And you know, one of the jobs you have is you try and organize the next year's conference. And I was sitting there at the end of one conference, and I realized that there had been exactly one woman who'd given an invited uh, a open talk. This is despite the fact that 40% of the membership are women. So what's going on here? And one of the things, so I looked into this, uh, one of the things is there was a choice you made when you submitted a paper. You either said, I'm going to present a poster, which is you get to sit might, you know, sort of meekly and people come up to you, or you're going to give an oral talk. Now, oral talks aren't automatic, but you have to have checked that box to be considered. And when I had a nice chat with the program committee from last year, they said, you know, very few people check that box, but particularly very few women. And in fact, we made a simple decision at that point to make the default that you would be considered for an oral, oral talk. And this means, by the way, you're in front of everybody and get tough questions and and they can be a somewhat combative tone. By default, people were into that condition. Almost everybody took the default. So now there was a lot more women to be considered for the program. And the next year, there was much more representation. Mm. So that's a place where defaults actually can have an influence in something you might think of as essentially human development. I mean, giving an oral talk is how you get seen. And so it was a real benefit for people to do that. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole point of being in an organization like that, right? Exactly. Had you not applied your smarts to that, the conclusion would have been women aren't interested in speaking at conferences like this, (laughs) right? Which is completely the wrong conclusion. And recently, there's a paper that makes that point in a series of experiments and even a field study. They use um, an online employment setting and actually change the default and show that women will much more likely to opt into situations they might find uncomfortable when that is checked. Wow, that's interesting. So you believe that we're all choice architects and that you call it a superpower that we never knew we had. So thinking about our audiences, supervisors, spouses, moms and dads, we use the tools of choice architecture for good or bad without knowing it. And so when it comes to making decisions on what jobs we take, who to marry, where to live, what insights around choice architecture do you think can help us most? So almost every tool I talk about, we've concentrated on defaults, but there's lots of tools, can be used in everyday life. 
a very simple example. When I set up an appointment, I could sort of say, oh, what's a good time for you? But instead, I typically say, I'm very flexible, but how is 12 o'clock on Wednesday? And you'd be surprised how many times that time works. And of course, I pick a time that's good for me. Hmm. That's just one way. A friend of mine had a great example. They had a three-year-old child, and they would always have a terrible time at bedtime because they would ask the question, do you want to go to bed or, or not? And of course, the daughter screamed and cried. Change the, after reading about this research, they actually did a nice thing. They said, do you want to bounce into bed or do you want to fly into bed? No more fights. So by changing the choice set, you you can actually change the behavior of those around you. And think about this assigning assignments to people. You can actually say, give them a choice, but actually have the choice structured in a way that you think what is best for you and them. Yeah. So either option you pick, I'm happy with. If you say, would you like to jump into bed, fly into bed, or not go to bed? <laughs> you know, the kid's going to go, well, I think none of the first two options work for me. So you're saying structure it in a way where you're basically making the choices for them, but any choice that they make based on the options that you give them, you're completely happy with. Is that what you're saying? That's right. In fact, the important thing to realize is you're doing it even if you don't realize you're doing it. That is, we're always being designers. And so when I ask my wife, here are three restaurants, which one do you want to go to? I'm being a designer. I either can do that without awareness, mindlessly, and perhaps haphazardly, and maybe end up with restaurants that we're both unhappy with, mm -hmm. or I can think about it ahead of time to try and, in this case, I very much want to say to both be happy, to maximize our joint happiness. Is there anything darker manipulative in this? So notice that as soon as I say we're always choice architects, that implies that there's no alternative than to actually be a designer. So yes, there can be something quite manipulative and, and dark if I use that for evil. And by evil, I don't know in the, in the Google sense, but I can do it that's in your best interest or not. <laughs> but the point is, whatever I do, however I design the choice, you're going to actually be affected. So how does this play out in personal decisions like deciding on what city I want to live in and accepting a job or choosing a spouse? How does this play out? Well, one very simple way is whoever's presenting that choice to you, if you don't have control, is actually going to have an influence. So I talk a little bit about dating services. You know, dating services are essentially places where you are being influenced as a chooser by the designer. So some sites give you an infinite number of partners. I'm thinking about Tinder. There's actually a great line, a description of Tinder thumb, which is basically the the utter empty feeling you feel when you swipe too many times, or another site which started out giving you one option at a time. One per day. Mm -hmm. And you think very differently in those situations. So I know in the back of my mind, I'm thinking I want to ask this question at some point, but I want to ask it now because it just seems like it fits. Give me some examples of leadership managers, people making decisions with their people where they become choice architects. Does anything come to mind based on your research? Well, we've sort of talked about two quick ones. One is, I think, the example of defaults for papers applies to all sorts of things. So you can imagine that if you thought women were avoiding certain situations, 
framing it so that you could have them actually be more active in that choice. So that's one really important example. So it's not just about academic papers. It can be in the research, it's being used broadly. So that's one thing. Another place is that you can think about having additional training. You know, you could have all job training. You can have people opt into that or you could have them opt out. So that would be another place you could do this. So everybody's going to training unless you tell right. me you don't want to go to training. Yeah, I exactly. Like mm-hmm. Exactly. And another example, which is related, is maybe somewhat controversial, but for COVID vaccinations, people have actually started giving people default appointments. This is actually done for years with flu vaccinations, and it has much more uptake. You can decide not to go, but in Sweden... In certain counties, they've actually made the default that you have a vaccination appointment, let's say Wednesday at three, but you can just turn it down and they get much higher rates of enrollment. So it's not a mandate. You're not telling people they have to be vaccinated. It's actually something that's just a default. It doesn't limit their freedom, but if they're not sure, it helps them make the choice. That's really fascinating because I just read The Human Element, which is Lauren Nordgren and David Schoenthal's new book. And one of the points that they make, Eric, is that we human beings absolutely hate being told what to do. And so if you mandate something, you can almost automatically expect that you're going to get resistance because it's a human need to be in control. It's a human need to make our own choices. And what's so fascinating about what you just said is that by setting up a default that everybody's going to get a vaccine, then somehow it takes that threat of you've lost control away. Is that what you're saying? Like, does that actually work like that? So here's the important point. It's not the people who are solidly anti-vaxxers. It's not going to make them get a vaccine, which is actually beautiful because you're not impinging upon their freedom. But lots of us are unsure. It's what I called assembled preferences before. I'm thinking about vaccination. I think of good things. I think about bad things. But It's going to structure the choice in a way that makes it more likely to do something that's in my own ultimate best interest. But it at least leads people into a direction that you want them to go to, knowing that you're going to get a higher percentage if you just put it out there and say yes or no. Just like going back to the women speaking at the conference. Everybody is being considered as a speaker unless you say you don't want to. And you're going to get a higher percentage. I think that's one of the big takeaways from this conversation. That's right. An important part, by the way, of understanding that is how that works. And that's where understanding and one of the things I try and do in the book is explain how all these things work. Because otherwise, they're just like Mm -hmm. magic tricks. It's like a good good carpenter knows how each tool works. Well, a good designer knows how defaults work. So that's, I think, an important part of what I'm trying to do. Well, the goal of the podcast is to get people interested in understanding that this is actually happening around them and to them and that they actually have the choice to use it themselves. But you're right. The book itself goes into the details of how you actually do that. I'm hoping to pique curiosity with this conversation. So this is something that really astounded me. And I should have been aware of it, but I want to point it out because this is sort of a subtly dark side of everything we're talking about here. And it's because you say that Google pays Apple $12 billion a year to ensure that it's the only search engine loaded onto an Apple iPhone all around the world. And in exchange, they make a net $28 billion annually after paying Apple all that money. So I looked at my iPhone and I realized there's no Safari, there's no any other option of a search engine on my iPhone. And we've all 
just accepted that that's okay. So all iPhones have Google and none of us seem to have a concern around that. So I just wanted to ask you about it and maybe other schemes like it that we should be all aware of. So that's actually when people worry about, is this all small stuff? Is it at the margin? This is one of my favorite examples because it's literally billions with a B of dollars and it has great consequences. So I think there are lots of those. We've talked about privacy, which is another related subset. We've talked about pensions, which is another big related subset. But I think that in general, every decision has a default, whether we realize it or not. So you think about healthcare. Imagine you had annual physicals that were the default. Now, that would actually increase people's use of preventive care. So other examples are all around us. Let me go to another one, which I, we may talk about again later, but I think it's really useful. You had mentioned earlier in the introduction, Netflix. Now, Netflix is the master of something I call a choice engine. And that is a place where they actually can be a designer that's interactive. They can customize things for just you. So one of the things Netflix does is actually an incredible amount of experimentation to basically encourage you to watch some things and not others. And, you know, for years and years and years, this may be more of an annoyance than something that's life and death. Although it's a big function of Netflix's profitability, you would go to the Netflix landing page and the video would start automatically. That increases the probability you're going to watch that particular video. And that video is not something that you've chosen, something Netflix has suggested for you. And that's going to have a big impact. For you, it may be you watch a boring show. For them, written across hundreds of millions of viewers, it's actually a really important determinant of what shows they get to show. You know, right after reading your book, my wife and I watched a movie called In the Heights. It's Lin-Manuel Miranda's new movie. And what he did was really clever. He included all these like longtime Broadway stars, people that have been on Broadway multiple times, many of them, you know, winning Tonys, those kinds of people, but also just people that have been on Broadway for many, many years. He used them as sort of, you know, background cameos. And I started recognizing some of them and not knowing their names, but having seen them, I grew up in New York. So I'm, I've had the exposure to them. And I was so fascinated that I wanted to see their names. And so I'm watching this on Netflix. And as they start to come up with the credits, the video pops on for the next show that they want you to see. And so I never got to see the credits because Netflix, you know, accelerated the process so that I would then sit there and watch another show. I guess they've made the decision. The default setting is nobody reads the credits, so let's move on. My intention with this discussion is to just introduce the idea that this is happening to us all the time, whether we realize it. And I was frustrated because I really wanted to see it, and they took that control away from me. And notice they believe, and they're right, that that's going to increase the probability that you'll watch the next show. It may annoy some people like it did you, but it actually works for them more often than not. Well, because I had a real intention, it annoyed me, but it also annoyed me because I'm aware of what's being done, thanks right. to you, right? So <laughs> I was highly attuned to this. You described an experiment where people were told that the hamburger meat that they were eating was either 25% fat or 75% lean. 
And just to point out the obvious, they're the exact same thing. But the words fat and lean greatly affected people's perception about what they were eating. So tell us about this, because I'm a big believer in the importance of leadership communication and being really thoughtful about how we position things, how we communicate them, how they're going to land on people. And so just this difference between lean and fat has a big difference in terms of how people responded. So tell us about that. It's really a classic study, and and I, I was lucky enough to interview Irvin Levin, who did it, and he tells the story. He was doing it in the University of Iowa, the psychology labs, and he was frying up chopped meat, and his colleagues were really afraid that he was running a McDonald's or fast food restaurant down there because the halls reeked of uh, hamburger. <laughs> but when people tasted the meat, depending upon the label, they thought this 25% lean meat tasted not quite as good as, as the 25% fat, but it was better for them and they'd pay more for it. Now, it turns out what happens is those two labels, again, change the way we assemble our preferences. If you think about 75% lean, you think about protein, you think about the fact you know it's helping you get stronger. 25% fat, it turns out, and people do this, they have people write down what they're thinking about you end up thinking of your arteries being clogged. So it's as if there are two different hamburgers, even though the meat is the exact same. Another place we find this, by the way, which really shows the power of this kind of labeling, is if you ask people how long they will live to versus what year they will die by. Now, those are the same Mm -hmm. question. (laughs) And we've done research, and it turns out in the die-by frame, People are thinking about Aunt Edna, who died at 58, the fact they used to smoke in college and they haven't exercised in a while. In the live-to frame, they think about, well, there's Uncle Irvin, who lived 102. My cholesterol is not that bad. And medicine is doing all these wonderful treatments. Same person thinks two different things. As a result, in the live-to frame, people think they're going to live 9.8 9.8 years, almost 10 years longer. Wow. I was going to ask you how much longer. That's that's astounding, yeah. isn't it? All by just the change of language. Exactly. Wow. And the change in language changes what you think about. It's important to get inside people's head that way. Well, but that's interesting because this is something that I've been thinking about since reading the book is that just in the way that we position things. I'm a writer and I coincidentally just finished writing an article and as I was putting it together, like it was done, but as I went back to read it in the context of everything that your book is about, I was thinking, wow, like I'm a choice architect in a huge way here because I'm basically laying out a premise and then supporting that premise, but it's all my construct. So I have created this funnel of, I want you to meet me here, and then I'm going to take you where I want you to go. And that's what any writer does. So, you know, sometimes we just think, oh, well, that's just the information, and we just take that as prima facie. It's like, okay, that must be true. But in this case, and I'm not challenging my own work, except to say that anytime you read something, somebody has done what I've done. They've made choices about how they're going to present it and what information they want you to see. And you have to then step back and say, is this fair? Is this everything that should be considered? Did he delete or you know, exclude an argument that should have been made here to give me an even better understanding? Th- does that make sense? Yes, but notice something that is, if you're really reading something and enjoying it, you're not doing that. You're not stepping back. Sort of like I argue in decision-making, people are too busy making the choice. If someone is a really good writer, you're actually not actually appreciating that they did that. You're just being 
exposed to the benefits of their writing. It's really hard when you're re- reading someone who is super to actually start analyzing the art, at least the first time you read it. Totally agree with you. So see how you're influencing me, Eric? <laughs> so tell us about presenting people with options. What can leaders take away from your research? I'm positioning this a little bit differently than I did a minute ago. That would help them optimally position and scale the choices that they ask others to make. So if we think about government as leaders, let me give you my favorite bad example, (laughs) which is in New York City, every eighth grader gets to pick a high school to go to. In fact, they get to rank the first 12. This is actually a system that's supposed to actually increase competition. So better high schools get more students, whereas high schools get fewer and leading to closing of underperforming schools. In New York City in 2018, they gave people a choice of 769 high schools. Now, I don't know about you in eighth grade, but I think I couldn't count to 769. It was it's just an impossible task. And it's a book that's the size of the old school phone directory. So this is really a, a big problem. So if we think about the Board of Education as a leader, I think they're failing people. Now, this raises a question of what is the right number of options? And clearly, you know, there's a, a lot of people say more options is never better. But that's not true either, because as you introduce additional options, you're actually introducing other alternatives. So let's take the perspective of a kid. You want to make sure they see a college prep school. They may want to see a vocational school. They want to see schools nearby. By introducing additional options, you're increasing the chance that somebody's going to find the school that's right for them. So unfortunately, I'd like to say it's always five, but I really need to say it's a balance between including options that are good for someone and not overwhelming them and making it very hard for them to make a decision. So when I read that, I thought, you know, if they asked a few questions up front, so before they tell you here are the 767 schools that you can choose from, if they had said, do you have a preference for staying in your own neighborhood when you go to high school? And do you want to go to a school that's going to prepare you for going to college? So that would eliminate, like if you decided that you wanted to stay in your own neighborhood so you could walk to school, that would eliminate probably, you know, 750 of the schools, right? Then if you said college bound, then you could have a much more manageable number. And so I didn't understand why they created this book and gave people from the start where they easily could have, you know, structured it in a way where people made some basic decisions about where they wanted to go to school. Because 767 schools in in New York City, you could be on a subway for two hours, you know, going to school because you wanted to go to a school that taught drama or something, which is fine. But it shouldn't be in in the option of of everyone if most kids don't want to go to a drama school, for example. Am I making sense? No, that's right. So the real way of constructing that, and think about this again for your employees, if you're giving them choices, is to give them a set of options that are good, options that are clearly bad. So, for example, in New York City, there are schools that only graduate 40% of the students who enroll. I mean, that's just, it's more than a shame. It's a tragedy. So some people have actually said, filter out all schools that don't graduate at least 70% as a way of increasing school choice. 
So that's an alternative. I think part of the reason in, in New York City this was a problem is they were a doing this in the early 2000s. So not everybody had a PC or a phone. They wanted to make sure people who were not well off had access to the information. Although I'd argue, you know, the phone book is not the way to ensure you get access. They also, by the way, produce it in 10 different languages. So it's not as trivial as it sounds, but it clearly reducing this choice set and doing some sort of screening can be useful. Got it. So your friends and colleague of Richard Thaler, who famously introduced the concept of nudges, tell us what a nudge is and how workplace managers can make wise use of them. So the term nudge I love and have a problem with. Hmm. Nudges are essentially little interventions that don't change the incentives that you give somebody, yet changes what they will choose. So many of the things we've been talking about will qualify as nudges. The concern I have about the term nudge is it sounds like there is a possibility of not nudging somebody, that you can leave the status quo and that's okay. Now, the status quo is a choice architecture. So yes, there was 769 schools in New York. That's the default, but that's not necessarily the best thing. And in fact, it's a sort of a nudge for bad decision-making. So I think the concern is that often, if a manager can actually change the choice architecture, they're actually going to have an influence. And many people would call that a nudge. So years ago, I had a very large team of direct reports. And they had a very large team of direct reports. And their responsibility was to write reviews for all of their people. And so I gave them a deadline. Not everybody had the same exact deadline. Reviews are done December 1st, we'll call it. And so rather than have people tell me oh, I didn't get them all done on December 1st. Around November 15th, I would send an email just to say, hey, we're two weeks away from the deadline. Just a quick reminder to prioritize this and make sure that we all hit that deadline. And I did that kind of stuff all the time. And it made a huge difference in people actually going, oh, thank you for reminding me because their head was in something entirely different. So that's an example of a nudge that worked beautifully for me. And this is long before I ever read Thaler's work. Do you like that idea? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's a very important idea. And, and notice that the status quo, not sending a email, is an option. It's just not one we think of because they have to make an active choice. But it's not as if the status quo, not sending messages, was necessarily, it's, it's a decision not to send a message, isn't it? It sounds philosophical, but it's not. You know, some of my f- most famous research is looking at organ donation. And there are countries where you're an organ donor by default and other countries where you're not. And one of the things that's true there is people think maybe not being an organ donor is the status quo and getting people to become donors is a nudge. But notice, in a number of countries, you're a donor by default. Which one is right? Well, it depends upon what you want to happen. Well, but it depends upon what others want to have happen in the case of organ donors, right? So their society made the decision it's in the best interest of people to be an organ donor. So we're going to ask you to opt out. In the case of status quo with all of my managers... You know, I can almost predict that somebody was going to be late with those reviews and that that was going to create a challenge for me, right? Now I'm having to hunt them down and make sure that we get them and I'm going to be late and all those kinds of things. So it was just simply just reminding people of something that they'd already agreed to do. So the status quo would have predictably resulted in a certain number of the managers not meeting that deadline 
Whereas, and I never measured it, but I can assume from the success that nudge lent and other nudges that I used in similar contexts, that it improved the behavior that I was looking for and was consistent because it affected everyone. It wasn't just I was sending a nudge to a couple of people that I expected would probably be late. Right. And what your example points out is something really important, which is there are two possible defaults, either send the email or not send the email. And the question is, what would people rather? The status quo may not be in their best interests. So you said earlier that the manager thanked you for this. Now, assuming that's sincere, you're actually doing something that improves their performance and not just your output. So they're happier because they got that. It turns out with organ donation, most people will actually not only prefer to be a donor, something like 80% of people agree that in theory, organ donation is a good thing. And there's a huge gap. Only 40% of people actually register. So there's a big gap. It turns out recently, surveys have started showing that people think being a donor by default is the best thing to do, a small majority, about 55%. So the question you're raising is actually, what is the right default? Both are defaults. Mm -hmm. The email or not the email, you can do one or the other. It's just, what's the right one? And again, in the best interest of you as the manager, and also your employee or the person as a donor. So how do you make that decision? Well, this gets to be closer to an ethical decision than you'd ever think about. That is, you know, do you want to help your, I would argue probably as a manager, want to help your employees actually do the best they can on multiple dimensions. And so if you think it's ethical to help your employees get additional training, save money, do preventive health care, a whole set of things, then I think the answer is clear. Good. <laughs> All right. Something else that's interesting, which seems terribly unfair, but at the same time, being the first name on an election ballot, if your name is the first, is a huge advantage when it comes to winning elections. And that's true for when you go into an ice cream store, the first choice that's up there outsells all the rest. Hotels that show up, this is probably why Google gets so much money for prioritizing what gets our attention from the very beginning. Um, this is just another fascinating part of your research that I wanted to make sure we talked about. So it's actually very interesting because I started reading about this. One of the nice things about writing a book like this, by the way, is you, you get to talk to people and do research and read whole areas that you didn't know existed. It turns out in elections that on average being first in the ballot is, it doesn't seem like much, one or 2%. But of course, you look at many elections and that is the margin of winning. So if it's one or 2%, actually being first is a huge advantage. Now, to your point about what is the right default and how do you set that, in many states, whatever party that's in power gets to set the default. So I use the example of the 2000 Gore versus Bush election. And remember, Florida was incredibly close. You know, I think there was a total of 500 votes at the end of the day that separated the two. Now, think about comparing that. It turns out the default, what was first, I should say, not the default, was set by the governor, whose name you might remember was Jeb Bush. His brother. His brother. And there's no nothing wrong with that. That was the law. In fact, the mm -hmm. law yeah. that the governor sets the vote was passed by the Democrats in 1950. And in fact, it's not something about parties. It's just parties tend to adopt rules. In fact, in Delaware, it turns out the Democrat is always first in the ballot. That's particularly unfair. You could also, by the way, have the incumbent being first in the ballot, which ensures that they're more likely to get reelected. 
So here's a case where I think it's clear there's an effect. You don't think it's particularly fair that anyone should have an advantage. So what some states have done, which is actually quite nice, is actually they randomize who's first. Let's say every county gets a different order. And then you can separate the order from people's true preferences, voters' true preferences. Mm. The story I love is one where there was a Supreme Court election in Texas, Republican nomination. And there were two candidates. One was named Paul Green. I think the other one was named Richard Green. And those are pretty close together. And whoever was first on the ballot, because Texas does randomize order, got 20% more votes. Wow. That's a huge effect. Each time, right? That tells us a lot about our voting. Each time, yep. So Dallas voted more for Rick Green, Houston for Paul Green, only because who was first on the ballot. Wow. That's incredible. Everyone, let's take a very quick break here, and we're going to return with the heartbeat round. Hi, everyone. Dave Silk here, briefly to remind you that so much thoughtful work goes into producing every one of these Lead from the Heart podcast episodes. Mark reads his guest books cover to cover, invests great amount of time in thinking of questions that will uncommonly inform you, and then ensures they are meticulously edited. That kind of attention to detail is rare and is yet another reason we at Mitel Networks are proud to be its sponsor. When your goal is to communicate important information to people all around the world, you need that kind of care and expertise. We thank you for listening and invite you to learn more about us at mitel.com. Okay, Eric, time for a brief departure from our great discussion. We have a tradition on the podcast we call the heartbeat round for clever reasons. And I have a dozen or so questions that I'd like to ask you, but these are all ones that just require a quick and instinctive answer and will give us all greater insight into what shapes you personally. So your goal, of course, is to answer each of these in a heartbeat. Are you ready? Ready. All right. Quality you most admire in other people. Curiosity. One book that profoundly changed your life. There are two I read simultaneously, you know, in quick succession on the road and the electric Kool-Aid acid test. And they really opened my eyes as a working class kid in New Jersey to what possibilities there were out there. Jack Kerouac? Jack Kerouac and Tom Wolfe. There you go. 20 years ago, you had stage four Hodgkin's disease and you fully recovered. The number one lesson or piece of wisdom you took away from that experience One of the things that one of the great social workers said to me is every day going through this process will be a battle and you have to look at one day at the time and do the best you can for that day. I hope that I've continued to do that long past my recovery. Wonderful. If you want your partner to agree to watch the same Netflix movie you want to watch, what's the best way to order the options? (laughs) You have to promise that you don't tell her what I say. Uh, The answer is keep the list short. Make sure there's at least one option that is mutually satisfactory and put that option first. (laughs) Okay. What's at the very top of your bucket list? I think convincing people that choice architecture, it's going to sound corny, is important. I think, as you say, people aren't aware of it, and it really could have a huge influence on well-being. One thing that you learned while writing your book that astonished you the most I think an interesting struggle was trying to make sure the science I talked about was actually replicable, reproducible. Probably not to your audience, it's not familiar, but there's a big controversy now about studies that don't replicate. They Mm -hmm. sound good, Mm -hmm. but they don't. And trying to actually figure out how to write a book that was approachable and still actually made sure the science was good was sort of a real struggle and astonished me how hard that was. I bet. 
a quote that sums up your life philosophy. There's a Browning quote that I've always liked, which is, for a man's reach should exceed their grasp, or what's a heaven for? And the fact is, we may not make it, but we're certainly better off trying. Love it. Quality that derails the most leadership careers. Hubris and overconfidence, I think. You know, thinking we know what's going on. I mean, I keep getting surprised, and I call that learning, but too often we're, we're sure and right, and don't ask questions that, that we can learn from. Your best synonym for the word heart. Passion. One thing you hope to see change in the world. This may sound odd, but I really hope that there is the wisdom to have some good way of regulating carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas. The simple answer would be, I hope we get a carbon tax. One person alive or dead you'd like to have dinner with. Very tough question, as you might guess, and I'm running out of the heartbeat, but I'd love to have dinner with Barack Obama. One trait you consider essential to your success. Obsessiveness and curiosity, but I'm pretty obsessive when I get interested in a topic. So, for example, the work on organ donation, I just read everything I could for two weeks. I didn't read anything else. One thing you love about living in New York City? Having the world's very best music of all kinds 20 minutes away. Oh, that's wonderful. And then finally, one thing about the future absolutely certain will come true. Uh, I really think I'm going to be surprised. <laughs> these are great. Thank you so very much for going through these with me. Before we go, Eric, I have one more question for you. In, in keeping with our podcast tradition, I'd like to turn the floor over to you in hopes that you'll leave us with just one final piece of insight from your book that you especially want to call out and leave us pondering with the background that it's a leadership audience and how can they take everything that you've learned and start to apply it within their own lives, but especially within their professional lives. So, I mean, I think I do this all the time. I'm an academic, but I do have students. I do have lots of people I work with. How can I use choice architecture to help the people who I can influence make better decisions for them? You know, the example I, I love of women giving talks at the neuroeconomics meeting is just a small example, but we are choice architects or designers all the time. And we actually can help people by doing that. I love it. Your book is wonderful, very insightful, completely off the beaten path in terms of things that we normally talk about on this podcast, which is one of my goals for 2022. So thank you so very, very much. On behalf of my audience, Eric, we've really enjoyed it. So thank you. Mark, thank you so much for the interesting conversation. Before we go, I'd like to put a quick plug in for myself here and ask you to please keep me in mind if you're planning a meeting or seeking a keynote speaker. I'd love to come to wherever you are or to meet with you virtually if that's the best option. 2022 is going to be the year when organizations everywhere will be pivoting to the lead from the heart philosophy. The time has finally come and I'd love to come speak about it. Our theme music, Take the A-Train, was composed by Billy Strayhorn, performed by the BBC Big Band Orchestra. I want to thank my team, including Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Eric Oz, and not to forget Mitel Networks. And as I leave you, I do so with my constant reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now. Mm -hmm.